0: Genesis chapter 11. We're going to read the first nine verses, and then we're going to talk about it. Genesis chapter 11, beginning with verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and dwelt there. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone. They had asphalt for mortar. And they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of man had built. And the Lord said, Indeed, the people are one, and they have one language. And this is what they begin to do, now nothing that they propose to do will be withheld from them. Come, let us go down, and therefore confuse their language, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from over the face of all the earth, and they ceased building the city. Therefore its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of all the earth." In way of introduction this morning, I want to begin by explaining why this plan, hatched by a man we looked at last Sunday named Nimrod, this plan of unifying humanity with this city, the city of Babel, why this all drew such an ire from God. As we mentioned in our first few studies in the book of Genesis, God had created man with this basic relational need. Interestingly enough, a relational need that couldn't be met by God alone. That God created man with the desire for human companionship, community with one another. And yet, by his design, lasting human community would still demand God's involvement. As long as man was at peace with God, mankind would, would be at peace with one another. However... As a direct result of this splintering between God and man on account of Adam and Eve's rebellion, there would subsequently, as a result of the splintering, there would be a fracturing within the human community. I mean, that reality, it becomes all too apparent. As man's sin nature prohibited even the first two brothers from living in harmony. You know, we talk about humanity being a brotherhood. The first two brothers couldn't get along. You had within the human condition envy and jealousy and anger, all of which ended up motivating Cain and his treacherous act to kill his brother Abel. In many ways, Babel, this city founded by Nimrod, was founded to directly challenge this truth. Nimrod was able to sell the world on the lie that unity and harmony could be possible even in spite of man's core fallen nature. Nimrod peddled the notion that apart from God, man could still live as one. The problem is that God knew not only would this social experiment eventually end in disaster for reasons we'll discuss in a few minutes, but in the end, God knew that Babel, this attempt, this social experiment would rob humanity of the only mechanism by which true community would ever be able to be possible through God's amazing grace. The truth is that beginning with Babel, man-made religion had not only failed to unify man, but this counterfeit proposition directly contributes to some of the worst, deepest fissures within mankind. Honestly, think about it. And let's just be honest. You've heard skeptics throw this out, right? About the dangers of religion. How religion has killed more people than anything else, right? Let's let's be real. Religion has been terrible for planet Earth. I mean, religion has done more to create and to solidify divisions within the human family than maybe any other man-made institution ever has. John Stewart famously quipped, "Religion, it's given people hope in a world torn apart by religion." It's true. As we noted last Sunday, this city, the city of Babel, was established to fundamentally operate in an act of rebellion. Nimrod built the city of Babel as a direct contradiction to the commands of God. Look back, following the flood, Genesis 9, verse 1, just for reference. We're told, so God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. I mean, Nimrod's entire justification for building Babel was that so man wouldn't be, look again at the verses we read, scattered abroad over the face of the earth. While God, after the flood, wanted man to disperse, man instead chose to do what? To unify. And it's for this reason that God came down to Babel specifically to confuse their language. And as one can imagine, because they're now unable to understand one another's speech, unity was an impossibility. This division or scattering was the natural result of God confusing the languages. Now, on a related note, isn't it true that our greatest hurdle to relational harmony often boils down to a failure to communicate? Isn't that a truth? And no, this concept, it's, it's true in like its macro application of society at large as it is in the micro application of like your relationships and your marriage. Communication. It's a big thing. You know, disagreements where two parties involved don't care to really understand the opposing perspective, they always end up with two people. More interested in winning arguments than resolving conflict. That's how it works, right? I mean, aside from your marriages, the other people's marriages. That's what we're talking about. Like, instead of working to make sense of the other side of an argument, how quickly it is that we grow defensive, right? We take an opposition personally. We harden in our position. We rally to our own ideological corners. And then what do we do? Work for peace? Nah. We demagogue and demean the other side as we fight it out. Always remember, because it's only natural for divisions to manifest from confusion, there are two basic fundamental keys to healthy relationships. One, have a heart to understand where the other person is coming from. Fellas, it'll go a long way if you first take a minute to understand where your wife's coming from. You might not get it. You might not understand it. But the act of just trying to pay attention and figure it out goes a long way. But the second key is then to work to communicate with other people effectively. What's fascinating about this passage is not only does there seem to be Only one original language that existed from the time that God created man. Hence, language in our text is in the singular sense. One language that then God confused. But it was specifically because man had failed to fill the earth that God scattered him by supernaturally confusing his tongue, his language. Literally, confused, it means to mix up one language that God mixed up which resulted in confusion. The idea is that from the city of Babel, each individual family, clan, now unable to effectively communicate with other families to understand one another, they then begin to migrate away from Babel, away from this this land of Shinar, taking with them their own unique form of this common language. Note our text indicates that this confusion And subsequent division occurred immediately. Look at our text again. We read, so the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the earth and they ceased building the city. The idea is that this was a supernatural occurrence. Something happened immediately, which caused this one language to be splintered, to be confused. So people just stopped what they were doing. They quit building the city, quit building this tower and simply began to move on. Now, one of the things that makes this entire story so fascinating to me is that our text this morning, the first nine verses of Genesis chapter 11, provides the only plausible explanation for the origin and the diversity of human language. Did you know that? According to Wikipedia's page on the origin of language, let let me read you a little blog. The origin of language in the human species has been the topic of scholarly discussions for several centuries. In spite of this, there is no consensus on the ultimate origin or age of the human language. One problem that makes this topic difficult to study is the lack of direct evidence. This shortage of empirical evidence has led many scholars to regard the entire topic as unsuitable for serious study. In 1866, the Linguistic Society of Paris banned any existing or future debates on the subject of prohibition, which remained influential across much of the Western world until the late 20th century. Today, there are numerous hypotheses about how, why, when, and where language might have emerged, but despite this, there is scarcely more agreement today than 100 years ago. They have no idea how we have a diversity of human language or where language even originated from. This post, it actually concludes by quoting a renowned Danish linguistics uh, professor, Dr. Morten Christensen, who's a professor of psychology and the director of Cornell's Cognitive Neuroscience Lab. He says this concerning the origin of language. He says it's considered, quote, the hardest problem in science. Interesting, the Bible provides a pretty clear-cut explanation in a very profound sense. While evolution provides no explanation, the diversity we find within the human language, according to the Bible, was something instituted by God as a direct response to man's rebellion. God intentionally mixed up one language into many for the purposes of dividing man so that he'd scatter and fill the earth he had as he had instructed. On a side note, 316.tv. I've included a link to an article posted this week by Dr. Christensen proposing the latest evidence breaking this week is quote that humans they found may indeed speak a universal language. That all of our languages, uh, examining over 200 different dialects all have certain similarities which might point to the fact that at one point, humanity had one language, and from one language, all of the languages of the earth ended up coming from. Very fascinating article. You can read of it on your own. All of this, though, interesting, but it leads us to a larger topic, a larger topic that we need to address this morning. I think we could all agree, right, that we live in a day and age that celebrates unification especially as it pertains to different people groups. Now that makes this interesting, right? Because what is God obviously doing? God is with a purposeful uh, direction segregating or dividing humanity. God's not unifying people groups. He's separating man like from this singular act of God we not only have, moving forward, the development of all human languages, but we also have the development from this passage of ethnicities as well as the establishment of nations and cultures. So the question uh, demands our consideration is why would God want to divide mankind and in the process keep man from unifying? I mean, in a sense, why would God have originally given Noah and his sons that original command to go out, multiply, and fill the earth. For starters, if you take into account that there are no chapter breaks in your Bible, in the original text, there are no chapter breaks, something added in later to make referencing easier, no chapter in verses. If you take that into account, God's instructions for Noah and his sons gain a bit of greater context when you couple that original command in Genesis 9, verse 1, to multiply and fill the earth, with the final verses of chapter 8. Like, there's no chapter 8, chapter 9. The text flows from one chapter to the next. And when you couple it all together, I think you get a little more context. Let me read it for you. We're told then Noah built an altar to the Lord. This is after the flood. Took every clean animal, every clean bird. Offered burnt offerings on the altar. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Great. But we're told the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake, although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, since seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer and day and night shall not cease. So, chapter 9, verse 1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. Do you catch the flow of God's thought process here? Although the imagination of man's heart was evil from his youth, that's God's evaluation, right? God still promises to never again destroy every living thing as he had done. And yet, and yet, it's within the same context of the depravity The brokenness and the propensity for evil within all of humanity that God then instructs Noah and his sons to do what? To fill the earth, to scatter. Now, though it's inappropriate to extrapolate from the text, as some have done, that God is prohibiting the blending of different ethnicities. It's a, it's a concept that existed within the church, it's an abomination. Don't forget, right, that God is not scattering or prohibiting the blending of different ethnicities at Babel. When God scattered them, there was only but one ethnicity. He's not prohibiting the blending, he's separating of one so that it would become ultimately many. I think that's awesome. That God took one and it was so bland and boring. He's like, within humanity, there's so much variety. They'll scatter, it'll be beautiful that we all have our unique uh, uh, physical uh, attributes different from one another that make us just cool as a species. But that said, I do think that Babel presents for us a relevant warning for our society, for us today. Notwithstanding the fact that in previous times, unity among the nations was only achieved through force. I mean, there have been times in our history that there has been not maybe global unity, but regional unity, whether it be the Assyrian Empire, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, later the Romans, the Ming dynasties of the Orient, flipping over to going to uh, what, what happened with colonial Britain, et cetera, et cetera. There have been attempts, but it was all been through force, through one people group dominating others. But with that said, as a result of two terrible world wars, the rise of an organization to try to prohibit world war in the future known as the United Nations, the merging of global financial markets, amazing telecom, transportation, aviation advances, the rise of the internet, social media, it's true, right? Globalization has become today's norm. As a world, we are more connected and interdependent than any other time in human history. Now, while this year we have seen increasing resistance to many of these particular trends, the truth is that there are, regardless of where you fall on the political spectrum, real, very powerful forces trying to usher all of us into a one-world system. Consider, over the last 75 years... The sovereignty of individual nation states has been eroded through the consolidation of power into several organizations like the United Nations, NATO, or the EU. Local markets are not only tethered to a larger global economy via trade deals like NAFTA or, more recently, the TPP, they're also local markets now at the mercy of an autonomous bureaucracy of unelected officials known as the Federal Reserve. Open borders, sanctuary cities, which allow for an unprohibited flow of migrants across borders, is heralded today as the only moral option for an advanced progressive society. In actuality, the brutal truth is that anyone in today's political system arguing for the preservation of borders and language and culture is viewed as being a nationalist, or worse, Called a Nazi. Now, please don't confuse or, for that matter, misconstrue what I'm saying as being nativist or isolational. Like, there have been very tangible benefits to increased globalization. However, I do think, in the face of this growing trend, we would be very wise to consider the lesson of Babel. Notice again. God's explanation as to why Babel, humanity unifying, was so dangerous. He says, this is what they begin to do. Now nothing that they propose will be withheld from them. Because of man's inherent evil, the story of Babel illustrates that God was and is deeply concerned when humanity seeks global unity, especially when the rallying point for that unity ends up being a man-made mechanism by which we may all reach to the heavens. Religion. The brutal reality is the depravity of sinful man is in many ways tempered when there exists natural divisions among people groups that provide needed checks and balances. Let me me try to illustrate this the best way that I know how. Um, I think you'll all get it. One toddler is crazy. Ever been around one? I mean, one's crazy. Two toddlers is nuts. Three toddlers is chaos. Four toddlers, it's war. It compounds, doesn't it? Like, because of the human nature of a toddler, which in case you haven't been around a toddler recently, I'll just kind of give you a flyby. (laughs) A toddler is a person whose vocabulary consists of one word, no, whose meltdowns are excused if they didn't have an afternoon nap, whose conflict resolution skills boil down to biting who are utterly spoiled creatures because they have every single thing done for them. Imagine for a moment allowing that person to unify with like-minded individuals. Like that is a dangerous proposition. Why? Because together they'll yield an even greater tyrannical energy than if you could just somehow keep them apart. Like, that's what's happening here at Babel. Because each individual man is evil, God knew unity would only increase man's threshold for greater evil. Unity would result in greater rebellion. You see, God scattered man from Babel because he knew these separations would not only temper the depravity of man, but would theoretically aid in his plan for redemption. We'll get to that concept next, next Sunday. In his famous song, Imagine. John Lennon wrote, here are the verses. He wrote this. Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do, nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Imagine no possessions, I wonder if you can. No need for greed or hunger, a brotherhood of man. Imagine all the people sharing all the world. And then the chorus, you can hear him sing it. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. In this song, Lennon, he not only is imagining a harmonious world living in unity, but I don't know if you notice, he does something really interesting. He not only imagines this world, but then he points out all of the reasons he believes such a world has been impossible to achieve. Imagine, postulates, The the rudimentary concept of an afterlife, the antiquated notion of country or ethnic divisions, man's restrictive beliefs in God, religion, even materialism, all of which he points out as being the very specific things keeping the world from finally coming together. And yet, the irony is that Lenin, Lenin fails to consider one key factor, Think about it. Even if you were able to eliminate all of the things Lenin proposes, the things he suggests, would a, quote, brotherhood of man really result? I mean, isn't it somewhat illogical to believe that a collection of men living for today would then really possess nothing to kill or die for? He doesn't really know man. Like, isn't it somewhat naive to think Man's greed would be naturally replaced with a desire to share with all the world? I don't think it works like that. Lenin, like many dreamers, failed to recognize this key factor. You know what the problem with man is? Man. It's none of those things, it's man. Once again, I know these topics, the idea of globalization, et cetera, et cetera, that they've come front and center in this year's presidential election. And please understand, I am not advocating that you go vote to make America great again. If that's what you want to do, great. If that's what you don't want to do, great. I'm not advocating for one or the other, that said. As Christians, here's why we should be really hesitant and even suspect as it pertains to this tide that seems to be pushing us all towards global unity. At some point, this utopian dream will be realized. And what results, according to the Bible, is the worst seven-year period of human history. That's a truth like in case you're not aware, the Bible does describe a future day when all the nations of the world will come together just like they did at Babel under the leadership of a man like Nimrod, a substitute savior. We know him in scripture as the son of perdition or more commonly the Antichrist. And not only will this day see the global economies merge into one, But all religion, for the first time, will come under one unifying banner. That this man will later achieve what Nimrod dreamed. Something we haven't seen since the Roman Empire. Man unified. One religion, one economy, one leader. And what does all of that end up producing, all of that unity? Well, according to the book of Revelation, war. War. Poverty, inflation, massive death on a scale never seen before, famine, disease, environmental catastrophes, a global persecution of Christians, genocide. The list can go on and on. Like in the end, unified sinful man, he will reach the zenith of his pride and arrogance when he actually stands to wage war against the God of the universe. That's is in the heart of man. That's what God saw at Babel. Now, before we transition, I want to take a moment. Obviously, you can see how Genesis 11 here, like it, it sets this context for almost all of Scripture. Like this idea weaves its way through all of the pages of the Bible. From Genesis to Revelation, Babylon, same Hebrew word as Babel, exists not just as a physical location, but when that physical location goes away, it exists as an idea that there's the spirit of Babylon at work today within our society at large. But I I do want to kind of take maybe a different angle here to Babel, to kind of balance our perspective. Let's place it in the greater context of the biblical narrative. As we noted, God confused the language of men And he did so specifically in order to scatter man across the earth because of the tendencies of his fallenness. God knew because of the evil nature of man that true societal unity apart from God's involvement would never be achievable. Babel, it was a pipe dream that would end in disaster and God knew it so he intervened. He said, there'll come another day that you can try to do this. And yet, it is important to understand that the separation that came at Babel, you know, it wouldn't have been necessary, logically, if the heart of man had not been wicked. I mean, think about that for just a minute. If the heart of man had not been evil, there wouldn't have been a, a, a point to separate man. or no, a need to do that. It was his fallenness that demanded it. His fallenness. If man's heart had not been wicked, it might not have been necessary. You know, in the exact same way that sinful man had to be separated so that his wickedness would not be compounded, theoretically, righteous men could be unified so that greater righteousness would be compounded. I mean, that's logical, right? I mean, mean, think about it. If the logic behind God's intervention at Babel is true, we'll put it on the screen, that evil plus evil produces greater evil, then the inverted would also be true, right? That good plus good would equal a greater good. Now, since this is the case, unity within the diversity of man would not be possible if man's sin nature, it would be possible if man's sin nature was no longer a problem. Like, if man's sinful nature and desires was not an issue, not the overriding factor, if something changes within man so that he's not evil, doesn't have that propensity, but instead is righteous and has a desire to do good in the world, a collection of those people in the world, I mean, that would be a very Powerful force, right? Theoretically. Now, why God confused the language to separate man? Understand this divine intervention that we find in Genesis 11, it was a means to an end. Like, God scattered man from Babel for the purposes, and this is what's amazing, of actually truly unifying man later on in a way that would create a pure and lasting community on earth. What false religion would fail to yield, we actually see in our Bible a real moving of God's Spirit later accomplishing. If you would, we we don't often ask you to turn around in your Bible, flip around, but if you could just go to the book of Acts, chapter 2, for just a minute. I want to connect a few dots from Babel that I think is is incredible. Now, Now remember, at Babel, Acts chapter two, at Babel, man comes together, sets his tower to the sky. We're going to reach the heavens as one. God's like, no, you're not. Confuses the language. They can't understand each other. They scatter. That's what happens at Babel. Acts chapter one, before Jesus ascends to heaven following the great commission for believers to go into the world with the gospel, right? He tells the disciples to do something interesting. So Jesus says, go into all the world with the gospel. But before you do that, go to Jerusalem and just don't do anything. Just go and just, just chill out and wait. And they're obedient. And Jesus tells them what they're to go and to wait for. For the Holy Spirit to come upon you. Now, when you get to Acts chapter 2, and we'll begin with verse 5, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on 120 believers, probably in an area known as Solomon's Portico. They're in Jerusalem. It was a public place. Lots of people around. They're praying. They're waiting on this promise. They're waiting on the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's poured out. Now, notice, we're told... That there were there in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, they heard this sound occur—the sound of a rushing, mighty wind of the Holy Spirit coming. The multitude then comes together, and they're confused. But why? Because everyone heard this group of people speaking in his own language. And they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are are not all these who speak Galileans? Basically saying, aren't they rednecks? And how is it that we hear each in our own language, the language in which we were born? Perinthians and Medes, Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Pergia, Pamphylia, Egypt, the parts of Libya, adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome. Europeans, both Jews, proselytes, Cretans, and Arabs. We hear them speaking in our own tongue. What? The wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, whatever could this mean? Others mocking said they are full of new wine. Do you see what's happening here? Like, it's an amazing thing that while God confused the languages and scattered man at Babel in order to prohibit the furtherance of his rebellion, in this instance, on the day of Pentecost, in Jerusalem, when the Holy Spirit is poured out, what has God done? He has brought the nations back together. God did. To one place, at one time, for one purpose. So that they could what? Hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and their own tongue. God confused the language to scatter because that's what man-made religion does. And in this instance, he pours out his spirit, he brings the nations together, and he makes sure that they can hear the good news of Jesus. It's an amazing event. Like, you could say that God scattered the nations at the Tower of Babel so that he could reach the nations on the day of Pentecost, that that was God's plan. That that's his intention when he says, come, let us go down and confuse their language that God had in his mind. Their unity is going to bring about more disaster. They need to be scattered so there'll come a day I can bring them together to hear the good news of Jesus. While at Babel, man was seeking unity as he made his own tower, Unto the heavens. On this glorious day, what happened? God came from heaven to reach down to man. What grace. What what gospel. Man had done nothing to earn this, he had done nothing to deserve this. The Spirit of God was given by God to accomplish on earth a unity that no man-made institution has ever had the power to accomplish. Consider that as the church, in the book of Acts, called to do what? Once filled with the Spirit to take the gospel unto the nations, the nations God had scattered. That following the events of this day, In the book of Acts, we're given three fascinating stories that further illustrate God's grace and, in many ways, I believe, the reversal of Babel. At the end of Acts chapter 8, we're introduced to a man named Philip. Philip, the evangelist, who's called to a road to Gaza, he ends up preaching the gospel to an Ethiopian eunuch who responds, asks to be baptized. He gives his heart and life to Jesus. You realize the Ethiopian would have been a descendant from Ham, son number one. The next chapter, Acts chapter nine, we see another conversion. A rebel, a religious zealot, a man named Saul of Tarsus. On the way to Damascus to kill Christians when he encountered Jesus, the risen Lord, changes his life forever. Saul would have been a descendant of Shem, the second of the three sons. And then the next chapter, chapter 10, Peter is called to take the gospel to the house of a Roman centurion named Cornelius. Can you guess who he might've descended from? Japheth. Like think of it. It really is amazing with Genesis 11 in mind that the book of Acts records the gospel Being extended to all three of these groups, all descending from Noah's three sons, whom God scattered at Babel. Finally, please understand the unification of mankind, this unifying of man in one city with one language under the reign of a single man, that in and of itself is is not wrong or evil. As a matter of fact, you can make the case that that dynamic is actually God's ultimate plan. Man had been created, right, for community. The problem with Genesis 11 is that the city where this was to take place, this unity, was not Babel. The mechanism by which they would be unified, this tower into the heavens, man-made false religion, would not be the way. Nimrod was not fit to be the king. Scripture tells us instead that there will come a day when all of the elect from every nation throughout every age will gather together as one people in one city, the new Jerusalem, to do what? To exalt and worship the name of our King, Jesus. Jesus and he alone will eventually unify the nations. It's either does man want to do it? Or do we want to allow God to? In Revelation chapter 7, John says, Behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, were crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. You want to see unity. You know where it happens? It happens in heaven. And yet, this type of unity would only be possible through a supernatural act of God that would do what first? Transform the heart of man. That's what had to happen. The Spirit had to come, had to change our hearts for unity to ever be a possibility. What Babel intended to be, but would only fail because of the depravity of man. The church of Jesus Christ has been called and equipped to accomplish through the indwelling Holy Spirit. 1 Peter chapter 2, he writes, You, speaking of the church, are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who were once not a people, but now are a people who has not obtained mercy, but have obtained mercy. Always remember the best man-made religion can do is divide humanity. It's very good at it. The best Babel has to offer is but confusion. And yet because we've been given a commonality that supersedes all of our differences. What commonality am I referring to? (laughs) The fact that we're saved by nothing of ourselves is a pure act of God's grace through Jesus's sacrifice that I am transformed and made into a new person through the indwelling spirit. That is my identity, not this. The church. What should make the church special is that it should be the one place on earth that provides us a taste of heaven where all nations can come together to worship Jesus. Now here's the irony, as it pertains to the best form of human community this world has to offer. Like Think about our best attempts at community apart from the church. fallen people. Isn't it true that it's always a community that's predicated upon our likenesses and our saneness and not one that celebrates our unique diversities? Like yesterday across the South, there was a lot of segregation happening between Georgia fans and Missouri fans and I mean, who, there's nothing worse than watching a football game with an Alabama fan. We got nothing in common. You like good football and, and me mediocre. Because they always win. But you, but you get what I'm saying. Like we do come together all the time, but it's always dependent upon our likenesses and not our diversities. We gravitate to people we're like, not people who make us uncomfortable because they're different. Like, that's the best our world can do. No matter what secular society attempts to change that status quo, people will always connect with people who are most like them. It's a shame that the church has fallen into the same trap. We'll only worship with people who have the same skin color as we do that you have old churches and young churches and hip churches and not-so-hip churches, but that we can't unify. That's the world, not what Jesus started. Sadly, even the greatest social experiment ever devised by man, this melting pot known as America, the vast majorities of our neighborhoods and schools are still segregated across social and ethnic differences. That's the truth. Friends, the remedy is not social justice, but it's a revival of the human spirit brought on by Jesus Christ. The truth is that no attempt of sinful man will ever be able to remedy that dynamic. Babel, man's best attempt at it, has and will always fail. However, the church, the church is not a creation of man. Nor is it a work of man. It's a work of God. And as such, it should be the one place in our world where our unique unity is made evident by our distinct diversities. You see, in Christ and by his spirit, our ethnic differences, our cultural distinctions should fall by the wayside. Why? Because there's no hierarchy at the foot of the cross, there's nothing but level ground. It's my prayer that Calvary 316 would be known by our community as a place that bucks the trend. And you know, I think we are. I think we are a church. We're young and old, black, brown or white, rich or poor, Republicans and Democrats. City folk and farm bred alike do come together. I mean, if you look around this room, there's not a chance outside of Jesus any of us would be friends. Seriously, we're all so different. And yet that should tell the world that something supernatural is happening. Because it's not natural. The world says we should divide, but in Christ we come together. Hey may our church be a place that celebrates nothing but that one strand that ties us all together God's amazing grace amen so father